This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Van Leer series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm honored to welcome Robin Dunbar to the podcast today to discuss his new book, How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures. Professor Dunbar is an internationally known anthropologist and evolutionary psychologist. His well-known work in friendship included discovering the limit to our capacity for friendship around 150, known as the Dunbar's number. Robin Dunbar, welcome to the podcast. Oh, very great to be here. Before we begin talking about the book, Robin, I, I, I always like to ask my guests about the influences on their own intellectual development. Who or what were the important influences in making you the thinker you are today? My goodness, um, that's actually a more complicated question than you might imagine. Uh, I, I suppose, uh, in immediate sense, my PhD supervisor, John Crook, um, who was largely responsible for inventing beha- behavioral ecology in, in uh, zoology, as a subdiscipline within zoology, many, many decades ago now, um, probably had as much influence as anybody. And he was a very wide-ranging thinker. And I, ironically, he was deeply into Buddhism and eventually ended up at the end of his life as a uh, a Chan master, Chan, Chan being the Chinese version of Zen Buddhism. Um, so uh, when we sped him on his way to the next world, uh, it was in a, a, a rather interesting and, and, and enlivening Buddhist uh, funeral ceremony. <laughs> so, um, you know, perhaps my interest in religion goes back to uh, indirectly uh, to him, but he, he, we never really discussed religion, although he was very much interested in in applying the ideas of evolutionary biology to human behavior and one of the very early starters of that but i think in the end actually as much as anything my interest in in religion as a particular topic probably go back to my uh, early childhood where i grew up in in a very multicultural multi-religious environment surrounded by on a daily basis you know people from almost every um, conceivable major religion that you can think of you know all the branches of uh, uh, Christianity um, Sikhs uh, Parsis uh, Islam um, you name it they're all sort of part of our the daily fabric of our life and 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 no, this was in East Africa. Um, so that early exposure to different kinds of religions probably had a, an important seed that was sown in, in the back of my mind, as it were, that this was actually quite interesting thing to study. Psychologists who study religion, uh, they often use a rule of thumb to define what religion is. It's not a simple uh, concept. Uh, and what psychologists generally use are the three B's, believing, behaving, and belonging. Do you agree that that's a reasonable way of defining the topic? I think so, really. I, I, I'd go one step more uh, beyond that, uh, and that is to say there's an, is what seems to be the core of religion is a kind of mystical sense of engaging with the transcendent uh, world, if you like. All religions have this to some ex- uh, to some extent, and some most religion, most of the big religions 
disapprove of it on the whole uh, and have not been very happy with these mystical sort of uh, themes that keep reoccurring. But it seems to me it is a constant um, component, uh, a thread that runs through all the religions from the simplest uh, to the most sort of um, sophisticated world religions. And that's really, the, for me, that's the core to religion. The, a lot of the rest is just the, the sort of bulwark that's built around that to, uh, to make it all work. But, you know, religion is probably the most difficult thing to define because it kind of shades off into, if you like, philosophies of life. So if you think of the great Chinese um philosophies, uh, Taoism and Confucianism, you know, they, they have kind of a lot of the tick boxes that would make us want to think of them as religions. And, and, and they are included in what are known as the Axial Age religions, the sort of uh, great religions of the world uh, that survive into the modern times. Um, but on the other hand, <laughs> I have been chastised for calling them religions by uh, 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 Chinese uh, people, <laughs> uh, understandably, um, because in some sense they're philosophies. But I think they, they you know, it, it does create a difficulty for anybody uh, uh, trying to study religion is just where you start and what you include. And I, I kind of having really been trained as a philosopher before I became a, a scientist, I tend to take the philosopher's view of, of um, uh, definitions uh, of things severally and jointly, meaning there's it's a bit of a mess. Um, there are all sorts of bits and pieces that between them you can put your finger on for most cases of whatever it is you're trying to define, but not all of these apply in all cases. So, so I'm happy to go along with that with, for, with religion, and then we can sort out the mess afterwards once we've explored what it's all about. So um, it, it, am I correct in understanding that it's the mystical sense of engagement with the transcendent that you propose is what makes religion ubiquitous in every society around the world? Or is it sometimes that and sometimes the other things that we'll be talking about? No, I think it's the, the mystical component that seems to be universal um, as much uh, in a way which most other things aren't. You know, beliefs are often very particular to a particular religion or perhaps a particular culture. Um, the rituals that uh, a, a religion um, does, as it were, in its, in its services, um, the bonding bit, as you might refer to earlier, um, are very much um, part of the local cultural fabric. You know, so some religions disapprove of uh, singing, some religions disapprove of dancing, but not all, all religions disapprove of both. So it leaves us with, you know, the one, I think, common thread to to all of them from, you know, the most uh, earliest um, animist type of uh, religions that we find in hunter-gatherer societies, where there isn't even a concept really, uh, perhaps, of, of a god even, um, but there is a clear understanding of a transcendent world that you enter through trance. And so why do you think religions are often, at best, ambivalent and often critical of the mystical aspect of their religion? I think the answer is um, uh, very clear if you kind of look at the history of something like Christianity in particular, uh, because Christianity has had this long tradition of mystical sects and cults, um, all, almost since the day it was founded, really. Um, and the this the centre, the hierarchy, um, for a long time, Rome, of course, but um, more generally through the later Protestant and, and other traditions, have kind of disapproved of these mystical sects because they're uncontrollable, essentially. And, and th this kind of mystical element tends to arise in the context of very small groups uh, perhaps only a few hundred people built around a charismatic individual who, you know, 
comes uh, uh, to the world offering something novel and new or a new interpretation on an old theme. And often these are, shall we say, theologically wayward. <laughs> They're regarded as heresy by, the, by, the, by the, the mainstream. And I think, you know, you look at all the Abrahamic religions, they've all had the same, the same problem down through, through, through the uh, millennia. Um, so I think it's it's an issue an issue of of control over um, uh, the, the 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 members of the religion at large, as it were. Of course, once any organisation, you know, whether it's a political organisation or even dare I say it, a, a school or a hospital, never mind a religion gets too big. It, it you know it's really challenging for us humans to manage. Um, those kinds of organizations on that kind of scale. And, you know, you risk having the whole thing kind of fragmenting because uh, um, bits break off and, and uh, drift off and, and, and elsewhere, as it were. Well, you've um, studied our primate cousins, uh, and although we are the only species that has religion, uh, we're very similar to them in our social behavior. Um, and remarkably, I learned from your book that that similarity extends to the neurobiology of religion. Talk about the human social equivalence of primate grooming. Yeah, so um, all monkeys and apes live in very peculiar kinds of societies by comparison with pretty much everybody else in the um, mammal and bird world, the, the more social um, uh, groups, as it were, that, that we live among, um, in that they have these bonded social groups where um, the group exists in a very stable form through time. And, uh, and to make create that stability so that the group doesn't sort of break up in the way that a, uh, a herd of antelope might do in um, on the plains, um, they have capitalized on um, the endorphin system in the brain, which is part of the brain's pain management system, but it creates a sense of warmth and relaxation and calmness and trust in, in individuals um, when the system is triggered. And what, what's happened is, um, is, in a sense, they've discovered that if you groom each other socially in, in, in the um, conventional primate way to clean the fur and remove bits and pieces of vegetation that have got sort of stuck in the fur, um, it triggers the endorphin system and uh, creates this sense of bonding and belonging and, and trust. Um, now, so far so good as far as most primates are concerned. The, the amount of time they can devote to grooming is enough to keep uh, the sizes of groups that they have um, stable and, and well integrated. But once in our lineage, once we parted from the great apes, what, six million or so years ago, um, group size started to increase uh, in, in the face of greater challenges that our, our um, lineage was facing as it moved out from the forests onto the open, more open woodlands and, and grasslands. Uh, and bigger groups were needed. And these, these started to exceed uh, the size of groups that you can bond by grooming alone, probably around about 2 million years ago with the appearance of our genus, the genus Homo. And what seems to have happened from that point on is as the pressure to increase group size uh, increased through time, so we found more and more ways of... I suppose you might think of it as virtual grooming, that um, grooming without having to physically um, touch the other person. Um, and, and these have allowed us to bond more and more individuals. And, and partly the issue is that the intimacy of grooming, I mean, we still use grooming in that sense, stroking, caressing, patting and so on, arms round a shoulder, all these trigger the endorphin system. But, you know, we, we just as with other monkey snakes, only use them for on essentially our nearest and dearest. Um, uh, and, you know, sort of in order, and, and the problem with that is it's very much a one-on-one -on -one 
activity that you can't really groom with several individuals at once. And that's the big limitation that it has. So, so these other mechanisms that or behaviors that trigger the endorphin system that our ancestors discovered um, allow us to virtually groom with many individuals at once. And in some cases, really quite large numbers. But these were behaviors like laughter, singing, dancing, social eating, um, telling emotional sob stories, you know, all the things that are part and parcel of our uh, social toolkit, if you like, that we use every single day. Um, but the one of the later ones uh, that really had to wait for the evolution of, I think, language as we have it now, let's say language in the form that modern humans um, uh, aspire to, um, is religion. And, uh, and that's mainly to do with the rituals of religion, uh, because it's the rituals of religion that trigger the endorphin system. Of course, a good sub story of, uh, you know, the the uh, founder of a religion triumphing over um, uh, the worst that the world could throw at them um, is always a, a good thing to have in any religion. Indeed, most most of them do in their sort of um, uh, foundational stories, as it were. Um, but religion seems to have, I think, played a particularly important role in the later evolution of our species, uh, primarily because it's so good at bonding very large numbers of individuals, and particularly individuals who are strangers. So religion uses all of these grooming behaviors, singing, dancing, eating together, uh, which occur in other contexts as well, secular or just transient contexts. Uh, But religion adds that extra component, uh, whether it's the transcendent or the interpretive. I guess my question is, yeah, how, how is it different when it's, these are used by religion and when they're used by everybody else, a group, a group out for a lovely evening? Yes, uh, uh, what seems to make the endorphin system work particularly well is when you do things in synchrony. And if you think about the services of any religion around the world that you care uh, to think of, um, what's very uh, much central to to all their services is that things are done in synchrony. So you kind of uh, pray in synchrony or you sing hymns in synchrony or if if you engage in dancing, as um, uh, happens sometimes in the uh, Coptic church, the Ethiopian Coptic church, the deacons um, dance before the tabernacle and actually in in, um, memory of David dancing before the tabernacle in the Bible. Um, and it's it's this very slow swaying movement rather than this is not clubbing (laughs) (laughs) this is a very slow um, uh, kind of swaying from side to side to 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 um, singing and uh, sistra they they shake sistra to provide a a, a rhythm to it and it's it's there's something about doing these things in synchrony that seems to ramp up the whole thing. Um, but I think what it does is essentially, and if taken to the limit, it actually will do this, is produce a sort of hypnotic trance-like state in which you start to feel part of some greater spirit, as it were. This is how it's always described. You become immersed in the divine principle or in the spirit of God or some some sort of form of words like that. Um, And I think it's that transcendent experience that really makes the difference. You know, we can have fun socially with each other, doing many things, dancing, you know, singing, whatever it may be, uh, laughing, as we do, and, and we come away feeling very warm and, and uh, contented and at peace with the world and, and um, you know, very much engaged with our, our friends that we do these things with. But there's something about this sh- sh- one step further into a trance-like experience where you actually feel you're engaging with uh, another mind beyond you that seems to add a, a huge 
extra fillip to the whole process and, and, and makes it very much more engaging so that, you know, you feel very committed to, um, I suppose you might say, the theology of, uh, of the, of the um, context. What would you say is the relationship, if any, uh, between this kind of pleasure that we've just been talking about and the attachment feelings that it engenders and romantic attachment? Let's remember back to Freud, uh, who thought that religious feelings were just sublimations of more earthly sexual longings. Yes, I, I, I'll go halfway with Freud. Uh, let's say, uh, I'll, I'll, well, no, actually, um, I, I can see where he's going here on this. But I think it is certainly true uh, that the experiences we have in the context of falling in love with somebody um, is very, very similar to these kind of experiences that we have in in the context of uh, trance experience. Uh, and and uh, religious experiences of that kind. Um, it's the same mechanism. It seems to be the endorphin system that, that underpins both of those. Um, and of course, what, one interesting thing about um, uh, romantic relationships, in, in particular in this context, I think we, we experience a slightly weaker form of that with our kind of very, very best friends. Um, lacks the sexual element usually, of course, but uh, as I say, platonic friends. Um, it has the same sense of commitment and, and, and immersion that we have with the romantic uh, relationships. But what's important about all these is that they cause the brain to uh, shut down on its critical faculties. So you kind of put a rosy halo around the other person. Um, very familiar from romantic relationships uh, <laughs> until, until, you know, uh, long experience of uh, daily uh, exposure to them rubs off some of the shine. But <laughs> there we go. Um, but it's the same sense of, you know, I'll do anything for you um, that really then becomes really important as a, a component in religion, I think you have this commitment to, um, it, and it, it really does seem to be a commitment almost to an individual in this, in the form of God, however you might express it, um, rather than I think a commitment to a theology as such. So, and I, I think the the argument I might have with a lot of people who study religions. Uh, through the ages, in fact, is that they've tended to focus on, if you like, the cognitive theological component of it, the beliefs. And the beliefs are fine, and they define the religion clearly, but they're mostly not why people join religions. They join religions either because they've, of course, grown up in, within them, or because uh, as as converts, they've gone through an emotional experience, which is... Uh, creates this sense of deep, deep commitment, and and it's this sense of commitment and to to a religion that um, uh, is many ways very, very similar to the kind of commitment you see in romantic relationships. Now, what's kind of interesting in this context, of course, is that you know you think of religion is also a kind of ideology, if you like. So, so why can't you have a commitment to I don't know, let's say a political ideology? Uh, and the answer is, well, you can, but it never seems to be as deep. It, uh, it, it, there's, there seems to be something lacking, whether it's environmentalism or, you know, sort of a politi political party of a particular kind, there's always something lacking. And I think that lacking bit is this transcendental mystical component. There is no, no sense of another world, if you like, and uh, usually gets described as a spirit world, perhaps, um, uh, to which one might aspire. And that's about, you know, the person who occupies that spirit world in some form or another, whether it's a sort of uh, particular personalised view of a god or a, or a more diffuse one, as might perhaps be the case in something like Buddhism, which formally doesn't have uh, gods, but, you know, or a god, but... Um, 
you know, sort of still has this very, very deep, strong, uh, transcendent, trance-based component to it. Right. And, of course, um, there have been cults with charismatic figures who are almost godlike, and that was... Uh, that it that has ranged between the re- what we would call the religious cults and also non-religious cults. I'm thinking of uh, fascism under Hitler or communism, uh, but but we'll we'll avoid that uh, path uh, to something much more fruitful and pleasant uh, and related to the essentials of. Uh, religion's uh, success over time, and that is your work on the seven pillars of friendships, because religions, as we know them today, uh, many of them are very, very large, uh, but even the ones that are minority religions are larger than just the local groups. So Talk about the bonding and the friendship works that enable humans to do that. So the central issue, I think, with all these organizations, if, if you'd like to think of it more generally, is how to create a sen- almost a sense of family, a sense of belonging to the um, institution. Well, you know, that might be... A, uh, your business you work with, uh, or, or it might be in this this particular respect, you know, the particular religion that, that you uh, aspire to, to to be a member of. Um, so this bonding process that at one level works through uh, the endorphin system has a second dimension to it, which is much more cognitive. And this is what we refer to as the seven pillars of, of friendship. So the seven pillars of friendship are, if you like, a set of dimensions which seem to define the quality of a friendship in the sense that the more of these dimensions we tick with somebody, the stronger uh, the emotional bond will be with that person, the more altruistic we, we're willing to be towards them and so on. Um, that Those seven pillars are all essentially cultural, so we have to learn them. Um, they are uh, having the same language, uh, growing up in the same area, uh, or the same community, let's put it that way. It doesn't necessarily have to be a physical area, though it often is. Um, ha- having the same hobbies and interests, um, having the same career trajectory or life trajectory, if you like. And that's what underpins the fact that lawyers only have lawyers as friends and doctors typically have doctors as friends. Um, You know, it's having something in common to talk about, essentially. Um, Having the same worldview, which is a sort of composite of your religious views, your moral views and your political views. And then the last two, which I always think are the most interesting in many ways, or having the same musical tastes and having the same sense of humor. Um, what's interesting about those is that for creating a sense of bondedness to a complete stranger, um, the two pillars that come out most strongly are, are sharing the same worldview and um, uh, having the same musical tastes. And, and I think that's Possibly because music, in in one form or another, uh, is plays a very important role in in all religions because it creates this sense of um, uh, belonging through the endorphin system by the triggering of the endorphin system. Um, so you know, paradoxically, you can understand the you know shared views, shared moral views, shared religious views. We all believe the same. We all believe you know the same things about how the world works and why it works in this way. Um, but also there's a, 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 a nod of the head here, I think, in the direction of the rituals in the form of shared musical taste. We all like, I don't know, whatever it may be, your particular style of chanting from your religion, uh, you know, country and Western, you know. So, you know, the, uh, and, and very often these pillars are very good at creating what we call, have called uh, one-dimensional clubs. So you can have a club 
um, uh, which which is very bonded together, built ju- around just a single dimension. Um, kinship is one. Family is clearly one of those because that's derivative of the uh, third pillar, the the sorry, the second pillar, the community you you were socialized in. I think we think it's the, probably the teenage years, which are perhaps the most important here. It's it's where which community you learned what it is to be a human, how how one should behave uh, towards other people. It, it's that sense of learning the the the, the rules and, and habits of of a social community. Um, you know, so you know that it you know clearly give, is part of what gives us the sense of the importance of family. You know, before everybody else, if you like. Um, but you know, religion has this. This seems to have this remarkable capacity to step beyond the immediate and and pick up complete strangers. Yes, I, I was uh, very surprised and interested to hear more about uh, the finding that um, you write about, that that even in the context of meeting a complete stranger, uh, culture is much more important than ethnicity, uh, that eth- ethnicity plays a, a, a marginal role. Now, that, that was... a that was a little hard for me to square, first of all, with the prominence of racial issues in our discourse today, uh, and generally, uh, but, but also if I look around the world, or certainly in the United States, where I, I come from, um, ethnic neighborhoods are very common. People seem to Gravitate now. Of course, there's an overlap between culture and ethnicity, but clarify that a little more, if you can, please. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think one of the problems is we've kind of been derailed a little bit um, in the context of uh, racial um, stereotyping and the like, and kind of missed what's actually going on. So, so. Um, the issue from my point of view, I think if you look at uh, how individuals relate to each other, in the end, um, kind of your ethnic or racial origins tend to get submerged below uh, shared culture. And that certainly seems to be the burden of a lot of research that's been done, looking at the difference between uh uh, race and say political views um, as uh, sort of the important drivers of, of uh, commonality in, 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 in some social or political domain, um, whether people are willing to cooperate and so on. And, and in all those, every single experiment that's been done, um, racial differences get submerged below uh, cultural similarities. So I think the problem here is taking the long view rather than having our nose up against the racial grindstone, if you like, is that what racial differences are are kind of first pass cues of likely uh, cultural similarity. So it's it's by analogy with um, uh, romantic uh, relationships. You know, when you come into the room. Um, and you look around the room, uh, you're looking for the meeting of the eyes as it were, that, that, that uh, prompt you to go, ah, oh, this is the one. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you're, you're, because our relationships and even our romantic relationships are heavily driven by this homophily effect, this, this tendency to prefer people who are similar to us. And, and what it is, I'm arguing, if you like, is its cultural similarity. Um, uh, you know, the, the likelihood that somebody shares the same seven pillars with you uh, is driven by where they've come from. So kind of physical, visual cues tend to come in first. Uh, that's in the romantic sense. You kind of look for the, the, the attractive, physically attractive uh, individuals and go, right, let's try that. Um, uh, but as you, you know... <laughs> Romantic courtship is a series of 
kind of increasingly close uh, and intimate um, uh, reflection points that we go through, decision points, where, where you start off with this sort of very generalized physical um, cues, distance cues, and then you, you, you move in close and, and you evaluate um, uh, things like psychological and social cues through conversation. And then if you're still like what you see, you go in closer still and you start picking up the uh, chemical cues in the form of, of uh, smell and, and taste. Uh, before you sort of make your final decisions. Uh, and each, each of those sort of points, you kind of reassess uh, subconsciously or consciously sometimes whether to go on to the next step or to pull out because you kind of don't like what you see. So I think, you know, it, it, I, I use the term in this context, ethnicity, deliberately to avoid uh, the the word race uh, because the word you know the racial cues the superficial cues we have of say skin color or whatever it may be simply indicate where your ancestors come from whereas uh, a lot of these things are really driven much finer level by localized um, cues of of where you grew up so your accent for example your dialect. Uh, becomes very, very important in identifying exactly where you were socialized, where you learned how to how to speak, if you like. And that tends to become much more important. So it overrides um, things like skin color and, and, and so on, these physical cues uh, in, on an everyday basis. Um, you know, so and, and I'm kind of going on this because of my own life experience growing up until my early 20s, deeply immersed in a very multiracial environment. Um, I'm, I'm a native Swahili speaker, as it were, bilingual from, from practically from birth, um, or at least from when I started learning languages. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, sort of, I kind of just don't see those kind of superficial uh, kind of um, um, what we might think of as racial differences as being particularly relevant because, um, you know, if you look beyond the superficial, <laughs> well, I suppose we should be doing that all the time, shouldn't we? You know, it's what's inside the person that's important, <laughs> not what's on the outside. Um, but it's, it's, you know, creating this or the ability to sort of see that somebody shares a lot in common with you, which seems to trump everything else, uh, no matter how, you know, sort of important some of those racial cues may be in, in certain contexts. But I think that's because you've had kind of um, deep separations, uh, social and physical separations then between different groups of people that have become you know, cast in stone, as you might say, rather than um, being allowed to wither away as they normally would. Right. And, and the superficial can be very distracting. <clears throat> so that, that was helpful describing how one goes closer and closer and closer uh, in uh, looking for or developing relationships in terms of religion, let's look as closely as possible, even more closely, by looking into the brain and the mind for a moment. Um, it, what is the ability to mentalize, and why is it essential for the existence of any kind of religion? So the ability to mentalize, in many ways, is the other half of the uh bonding process from the endorphin system in, it, in that it plays a key role in our ability to understand other people's intentions. So mentalizing, sometimes referred to as mind reading, uh, the ability to read another person's mind, to understand why they're doing something or what, what it is they plan to do because you understand their intentions and, if you like, where they're going. Um, that turns out probably to be one of several cognitive uh, mechanisms or capacities 
which are both unique to the primates generally, but particularly so to humans, um, and are particularly important underpinnings of our kind of peculiar bonded social groups that, that we have and we share with the other monkeys and apes. Um, what's important really about mentalizing in the context of religion and other aspects of culture is that it allows us to create very complex chains of uh, mental causality, if you like. In, in other words, we, we can think in terms of uh, believing that, uh, I don't know, Susanna supposes that uh, James uh, intends to do something. Uh, and, um, you know, m- the best that monkeys and apes can do is is two of the first two of those steps. Humans can run to about five steps normally. Some people can do a bit better. Some people not quite so well as that. But it allows us to handle uh, conversations uh, conversation groups of the size we have, which typically involve four people. Um, it underpins our ability to unpack uh, complex causal structures, sorry, clausal structures in language. In other words, the number of clauses in a, a sentence that you can um, keep track of. Um, and it underpins our enjoyment of or our ability to compose uh, interesting um, stories, uh, as well as to enjoy them. So if you look at some of the masterclasses of uh, uh, drama writing like Shakespeare, he's extremely good at not overtaxing the mentalizing capacities of his audience, but pushes them to their limit as much as he can all the time, because it turns out that the more uh, mental mind states that are involved in the drama, uh, if you like, um, or even a joke. The more mind states involved in the joke, the funnier we find it, the more we enjoy the story. But if you go too far, if you have more than about five mind states involved in a story, you um, disappear off into kind of postmodern novels, and it's just incomprehensible to you. <laughs> right. Right. So this is this then becomes very important in the context of religion because at the end of the day, of course, any of these things we do, whether it's uh, storytelling, travel logs, uh, science, um, uh, or in, uh, religion, involves us telling stories, uh, if you like, uh, to each other uh, about a particular theme. Um, and if I can't explain to you. Uh, why, let's say, I think a particular bit of science works or a particular bit of the theology of religion works or is important, then, you know, we don't have a community. Um, you know, you, you it, 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 thinking in terms of the religious example, you know, you may believe that um, you have first-hand knowledge of God through, through trance, uh, and mystical states of this kind. But if you can't explain these to me and explain what they mean, um, we don't have a religion. You just have a belief. Uh, and I look askance at you because I have no point of um, uh, common uh, uh, um, basis on which to understand what, what on earth are you talking about here. But once once we can aspire to, I think, about fifth order intentionality, which is the norm for uh, adult humans, um, then uh, we, I think, go through a kind of um, uh, Rubicon, if you like, in which suddenly we can have communal religions in a way which with only third and fourth order intentionality, we can't. I, I kind of distinguish them between, uh, you know, uh, personal and, and if you like, uh, yeah, personal religions, uh, the sort of third and fourth order level. But once you have fifth order level, you, you have a, a, a community, a communal religion in which a, com- a community can all sign up to it because they all understand the um, concepts uh, that are involved, and then also agree with them. Mm-hmm. 
In the past few years, uh, I can't be more precise than that, there was uh, a very widely distributed in the media uh, research report that uh, indicated that religious people uh, were a few uh, IQ points uh, shy of uh, people who were not religious, the nuns uh, in, in the American census or atheists and agnostics. But you cite research that shows that it is not intelligence, but mentalizing skills that correlates with religiosity. And you do it by comparing various groups. So tell us about that. Now, this is uh, not, <clears throat> this isn't really our research as such. It, it, it was done by um, some folks in, in uh, Canada and America. Um, and what it seems to show is uh, essentially it's a comparison of people with low mentalizing abilities in the limit that would be high-functioning autistic people because one of the features that defines autism or autism spectrum um, is an inability to mentalize, to mind read, and therefore an inability to understand the intentions behind other people's behaviors, as it were. So they they may be able to figure out um, rules of thumb about why people behave in, in a particular way by Kind of abstracting principles uh, from from watching um, uh, many many examples of, of a particular behaviour, but that's a kind of bordering on a rote learning of um, associations, as it were. Whereas what defines humans in the normal sense of uh, normal adults is this capacity to go beyond the behavior and understand the mind states that drive the behavior. And that allows you to have much greater predictability of how other people will behave. So autistic individuals often don't understand why people behave in particular ways. They're very good at, maybe very good at figuring out that they behave in particular ways, but they really can't understand why they do that. And if they, on one occasion, do something different, it will floor them. Um, now, it, it, what the people that did this particular series of projects did was look at uh, people who are um, kind of normal IQ, if you like, but uh, um, uh, on the autistic spectrum and compare them with, with um, um, uh, what are often referred to as neurotypical uh, adults um, uh, in terms of their religious beliefs on the grounds that... Um, Mentalizing plays a very important compo- component in uh, your belief in uh, the existence, if you like, of other minds. It kind of makes logical sense in those terms, I think. And they found that um, uh, uh, autistic spectrum individuals were much, much less likely uh, to believe in God or, or to be actively religious um, than, than uh, other people were. Um, and and by extension on that, because famously um, <clears throat> Simon Baron Cohen has argued that the male brain is uh, just sort of part way over towards f- full autism, that uh, uh, women are much much better at uh, mentalizing than men are, and I think you know the evidence for that is extremely strong. I don't think there's ever been a study that's produced anything different. Uh, women's social skills in these contexts are just better than men's. Um, and his argument is that autism is just the extreme male brain. So what was interesting was that in these um, North American studies, they picked up exactly this difference, not just between fully uh, signed up uh, autistic spectrum individuals compared to, to uh, neurotypical adults, uh, but also between males and females among the neurotypical adults. So males were, A, much less good at mentalizing, and B, um, much less likely to be religiously committed and to believe in in religious concepts like God and and so on. Mm. That's it's fascinating. Uh, <clears throat> on, on a subject that isn't specific to religion, 
but is a, a very creative evolutionary expl explanation you suggest for why adult male and female vo voices are exactly an octave apart. Please tell us about that. Yeah, that's a rather extraordinary um, phenomenon. Uh, I, and I actually discovered it quite by accident uh, in a casual conversation with uh, uh, a musicologist uh, and um, uh, um, conductor of, of musical choirs, um, uh, uh, Nick uh, Bannon, um, when he just dropped into the conversation one day the fact that male and female voices were exactly an octave apart, and this was well known in the musical world. Um, and it just lit a bonfire in my brain because I, I just sort of blurted out, well, <laughs> that allows them to sing in harmony. Um, uh, 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 and uh, if, you know, even though they're, they're singing at an octave difference, they can synchronize the, the, the pitches of, of their voices so that they effectively sing in harmony. And this led us to um, look, explore this issue in, in much greater depth. Uh, it turns out that, um, of course, it's well known in, in, from mammal studies that the um, voice pitch of all animals that you know, do loud uh, singing or, or, or um, uh, other kinds of advertising, mate advertising noises, as it were, territorial uh, um, calls and the like, the, the depth of... The, uh, their pitch, the, fund the fundamental frequency that they can call at or sing at is reflected in the size of the body. So, you know, it's just, this, you know, it's just a mechanical, physical thing. Of, uh, if you want to get a very low pitch, you have to have a very big echo chamber <laughs> in the chest and, and, and the mouth to, to be able to do it. So there's this nice correlation between uh, not only the um, depth of voice, uh, a species has and and its size but also um in the voice pitches of the two sexes where they're sexually dimorphic in body size uh, as for example is the case in in many deer or, or or species like that um and particularly where in those cases of deer you think of these sort of uh calling battles that males have, these roaring battles that they 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 call against each other and 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 you know it saves them having to get to fisticuffs to decide who who's the toughest um uh, uh in the in the local mating arena. Um they can do it just by assessing each other's physical strength. Um, <clears throat> so if this rule then applied to humans, uh the depth of the male voice is so much lower than women's voices that men would have to be 10 foot tall uh, to be able to get down there if it was just the standard physical um, uh, evolutionary process at work. So there's something odd about humans in that males have much, much deeper voices than we'd expect for the size difference between men and women. Um, and so something has been pressurizing uh, male voices from puberty onwards or to go through this transition of puberty where the male voice drops uh, very, very considerably. And it drops about an octave, in fact, because, of course, women and children, pre-puberty children, all uh, sing or speak at the same um, uh, uh, voice um, levels, the voice frequencies, the pitch frequencies. So it's something odd about males going down there. So we're kind of looking at this, and or the interpretation we we put on this really is that um, there's a kickstart to uh, uh, male voices uh, being pushed down uh, as a result of mating competition, principally as in all other species of mammals. Um, but it's through the voices out of um, synchrony with each other between the sexes, uh, and in order to create or to maintain community bonding, <clears throat> which obviously has to involve both sexes, um, something extra pressure in terms of pressure was put on males to go further still so they could get back into um, uh, uh, pitch synchrony with the women folk in the, so they could sit around the campfire 
uh, of an evening, uh, singing away merrily to uh, to to, to, them, to themselves, uh, and bonding up as a community, as opposed to simply, you know, pairing up for romantic reasons, <laughs> which can go on elsewhere. But it's the the community bonding process and the need to create these bonded social large bonded social groups which is you know the core to our evolutionary success as a species just as it's the core to primate evolutionary success as a, as a, an order a zoological order um, uh, but it's this kind of it's a reminder I think of how important uh, singing uh, seems to have been in in our community bonding. Um, and also, you know, the, the remarkable flexibility with which biology or that biology has to be able to adapt to conflicting interests, as it were, because, you know, you've had several different factors pushing in, in, in some senses in slightly different directions here. Um, but allowing, allow, still, you've got the flexibility to allow um things of overriding importance, like getting the community to work as a community to uh, push males beyond what would have been their natural place to stabilize that. Uh, I love the the theory. The explanation is so elegant and satisfying, and not the least because it puts music and singing at the center of of life, not only in religious communities but uh in in all communities it's it's really it's very pleasing (laughs) and 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 singing is a kind of very weird uh form thing phenomenon in 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 this particular context i think because what we found with our studies um was that an hour spent singing together by strangers effectively turned them into what they perceived, if you like, as lifelong friends. We we refer to it as the icebreaker effect. And of all these mechanisms that we use for social bonding, for triggering the endorphin system, um, you know, singing, dancing, eating together, uh, so on and so forth, it seemed that singing was the kind of most visceral and instantaneous of these. It lit quite literally, you know, a, a, a a bit of communal singing um, turns complete strangers into a sense of, I've known you since I was at primary school. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Finally, Robin, um, what do you say to those who criticize religion as primitive and tribal and blame it for great many of our social ills, especially war and misogyny, how can something that provides so many evolutionary benefits also be destructive? I think there's two answers to this question. One is that in life and biology in general, there's no such thing as a perfect solution. There, there are only ever bests of bad jobs. Nothing is perfect. Um, so everything has a downside as well as an upside. Uh, and that's clearly true of religion, I think. It, it's, it's extremely good at bonding communities, both small-scale communities and larger-scale communities. It's surprisingly good at bonding larger-scale communities. But because that mechanism of bonding is based on differentiating between those who belong against those who don't belong, an in-group versus an out-group effect, I regret to have to say history tells us if not current experience tells us you know it also has this downside at the same time of uh, risking um, you know these dreadful uh, um, uh, collective wars against uh, either the outgroup or, or or the neighboring religion um, you know it's 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 as it's as bad, if not worse, as the usual rivalry between neighbouring villages on the football field. Um, you know, your, your your biggest enemies are always the people right next door to you, not people a long way away, whether that's within the family or or, or, or within the wider community. So, so that has always been an issue. But I, I, I 
and I, I don't know what the solution to that is. I mean, I think it has to be kind of um, uh, greater familiarity in, in the same sense of uh, the ethnicity issue, that eth- ethnicity differences die away once people live amongst them, yeah, them each other and, and, and get to know each other better. Um <clears throat> The the other the end of the day I think is that you can't. You know, religion clearly is very good for people, uh, in in the religious actively being religious and believing has lots of benefits for people. You know, it makes their um, uh, lives more enjoyable. That it actually embeds them into a wider community, which you know provides support and um, all these kinds of things that make life tolerable and allow us to cope with the various miseries that the world insists on throwing our way. Um, you know, and, and it would be, it seems to me to be, you know, wrong to uh, attempt to deny people those, those benefits. Sure, there are costs to be paid uh, on the, the other end of the scale, but we have to find a solution to those, not, not um, a solution to the uh, more immediate uh, symptoms, as it were. Um, and this is kind of, I guess, what an evolutionary perspective re- constantly reminds us is everything in life is a trade-off. Um, uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Find a solution to the downside of it so that the upside can continue to, to, to benefit people, even if it doesn't necessarily benefit everybody. The book is How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures, Lots of good luck with it, Robin. It's an important book, and I trust it'll get the attention it deserves. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us about it today. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.